Well, good morning and welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you are visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're in uh, week two here of our series in the book of Daniel, and uh, it's exciting to get into things. So let me, let me pray and open up our time. Uh, Lord, you are so good, and we do eagerly await that day when we will feast together with you. Uh, Lord, help us as we look forward to that day. Uh, Lord, strengthen us for now. Uh, Lord, help us not to lose hope. Uh, Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to you. We want to understand how great you are, how powerful, how loving, how good you are. So Lord, help us. Help us to see you for who you are and help us to respond properly to you and to the mercy and the love that you've shown us. Uh, Lord, be with us this morning. Open our hearts and our minds to your word. Help us to be faithful to you and to, and to the word. Uh, Lord, just teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in week two here in the book of Daniel, and we're just going to get right into some things. If you've got a Bible, open it up to chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, we'll try to work through things on the screen as well. It's just not quite as ideal to read off the screen, but we're going to go through here chapter two. And it starts here in verse one of chapter two, giving us this narrative. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. And his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid to ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. It's a really interesting picture right here in the second narrative that we're given. Out of chapter 1, right, and if you weren't here last week, or if you were, right, chapter 1 of Daniel showed Daniel and his friends being brought into Babylon 
to this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, who just took over the throne and who will reign, who will be one of the most successful kings in human history. His reign will have no end until his death, and then a Another kingdom will come, but this tremendous king, tremendous kingdom, and they find favor with the king. And then here, starting in chapter 2, this king is troubled. They want you to see Nebuchadnezzar is troubled. He can't sleep, and he has this dream. In the very second year of his reign, he is tormented by dreams. And he can find no peace. And he gives this request of his wise men, his sorcerers, his enchanters, Right? He, he promises them great reward if they can do it, but great punishment as well if they can't interpret this dream. He is desperate for the interpretation. And he's so desperate, but he won't tell them the dream. Right? He won't actually tell them what the dream is, but he's desperate to know what it means. And you can already see he's growing in his distrust. Right? He doesn't trust his wise men. He doesn't count, trust his counselors. He doesn't trust anyone's opinion except his own. It's like a lot of politicians. He doesn't trust the opinions of others. Prove to me. You have to prove to me that you really know. I'm not just going to hear what you have to say to me. There's probably within there a real distrust even of himself and of his rule. Right? I mean, he just inherited, he just walked into this kingdom. Can I rule this world? Will I be able to stand up as this great king? What does this dream mean for his future? And then that response of the wise men, right? There is no man who can meet this demand, O king. No man in the world, no man who has ever lived can do this. There is no king that has ever asked such a thing. It would take a God to reveal it to you. And God, gods don't live among men. The kingdom and the king here are just starting to unravel. We pick up the narrative in verse 12. Because of this, that response, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. The verdict comes down, death for all of the magicians, for all of these sorcerers, for all of these wise men. Right, for all of these people who interpret the dreams, which includes Daniel and his friends. Right, which is an interesting just side point right, of like Daniel and his friends, what they're considered in the land. I mean, they are considered by their culture to be sorcerers. They're considered to be, right, these, it's heretical what they're doing. Right? This is not what an Israelite should do. These are, this is an occupation. That, right, they, they shouldn't be doing this. They, to, be, to interpret dreams and things is not what Hebrews should be doing. Uh, these signs and portents and looking to the stars and all these things, this isn't what they should be doing, but this is where Daniel and his friends find themselves. And now they find themselves with a death sentence over them. Undeserved, unjust, death for all. Because these one wise men couldn't interpret or give that dream. And Daniel's response, 
Clearly, the author wants to show you that Daniel showed prudence, right? Wisdom, discretion in how he responded, which is very fitting with Daniel's character. He asks the question, right? Why so urgent? He doesn't lament. He doesn't bring up the fact that this request of the king is unreasonable or unfair. He just asks, why is it so urgent? As if what the king is doing is completely normal, right? Completely just, completely right. But why so urgent? And then he goes in and he asks for a time to go before the king. He must have some confidence that he's going to be able to do this. And it's strikingly the similarities between the story and Joseph and Genesis, and most likely Daniel is familiar with that story and has great hope, right, that God will be able to reveal this dream to him just like he revealed it to Joseph. And one of these themes here that the author wants us to show is again and again, he did it in chapter 1, he's doing it here too, that there are these trials, there are these moments in which Daniel and his friends are going to be differentiated from everybody else in Babylon. It happened with the food, right? And Daniel and his friends all of a sudden stood out from the rest of Judah, from the rest of the wise men. And now here it's happening in chapter 2 is again, where, where Daniel stands out, where these trials and these sufferings, this moment of crisis, right? And it begs that question then, what will he do? What will Daniel's response be? How will he react? And if you think about this context, right? Daniel finds himself in a job he didn't ask for, in a job, frankly, that's shameful. Remember, Daniel was meant to be the king. He was meant to rule over Judah. He finds himself as a sorcerer in a foreign land, in a country he didn't choose to live in, with a people that he would never choose to be his people, doing things he would never choose to do. What will his response be? With an unjust sentence of death over him. What will he do? The author is asking us to think of our time as well. Right? How, how do we respond? How will the Israelites respond? How do we respond in the face of testing, in the face of this culture that seems to always present us with that question, right? What will we do? How will we react? What will the response be? Well, we see the response here in 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the, the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. The mystery is revealed. God intervenes on Daniel's behalf, and he reveals to him 
the king's dream. We don't know it yet, but we just know that God has acted mightily and he worships him. That Daniel's hope of a God who is in control is answered. That there is a God who is in control of all things. His hope, right, that there is a God who actually knows, who knows our hearts, who knows our minds, who knows our thoughts, who knows our dreams, who knows us, and who knows this world exists. That there is a God who gives knowledge and wisdom. That there is a God who is in control. That there is this God that he's not foreign, he's not distant, he's not far off, but he does come near to us. And then in 24, therefore Daniel went in to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him that, hey, this is, I mean, the death sentence must be imminent, right? We don't know quite how fast this is right to that end, but it must be quick. I think that's why that, the haste is there. The, the, the axe is about to fall. With haste, he brings him in and thus said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshar. Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. What a good response. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation made me may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What an amazing little statement, right? This God of the universe has made the mystery known. Daniel could take all the credit in the world for being able to do this. I know it. I figured it out. And he doesn't, right? And he clearly says, this is not because I am any better than any of your wise men. Right, this is not because I have any special knowledge any more than anybody else. I'm not any better. I have nothing to give you that they don't have to give you. Don't credit this to me. Credit this to God. It is only God who revealed this mystery. And the reason, right, this must, for Nebuchadnezzar, this must be pretty shocking, right? The reason this has been made known, it was not to save Daniel, not to save his friends, not to save the wise men, but it was for the king. It was for Nebuchadnezzar's sake. The Lord of the universe wants to teach Nebuchadnezzar, wants to show him who he is. It's all for the king's sake. And then in verse 31, we see the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. 
This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You can understand why this dream would be so troubling to a king. To a king who is ruling over the greatest kingdom, who is the second year of his reign, and you see this image every night, this statue being destroyed, and that stone growing and filling the earth, right? you would be pretty desperate to understand what is trying to be told to you. And then Daniel gives him the interpretation of the dream. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. That is, that's an amazing statement right there, right? That's something you would expect to be said to Christ himself. And into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom, inferior to you, shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this dream. This dream is certain, and its interpretation, sure. It's an amazing dream, and it's an amazing interpretation. The Lord has given to Nebuchadnezzar I mean, this is, it's staggering, right? When you look at that, at what Daniel just told Nebuchadnezzar. The description 
of Nebuchadnezzar's reign and rule from Daniel. I mean, this sounds like right, the promised king of Israel. I mean, everything has been given to him from God. He is to rule over every human, every animal, every bird. Right? Everything has been given into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Like, what did Nebuchadnezzar do to gain this much favor from Yahweh? He's not even a Jew. He's never even heard of Yahweh until now. Right? Like, what has God done? What did he do to deserve that favor that he's receiving from God? The Lord gave and gives everything into his hands. But then it's clear, right? It will be short-lived. And after you, another will come. And that kingdom will rule. And that will be short-lived. That the Lord gives and he builds nations. And he tears down the nations. He will give into the hands of a king and then he will take it away and another will rule in its place. But that ultimately, the Lord will be building a kingdom that will never end and that will shatter the kingdoms. And that kingdom will be established. And he ends right by making that point again to Nebuchadnezzar and to the reader. There is a great God in heaven who makes these things known. There is a great God in heaven who knows all things, knows how everything is working together, even when we don't, right? And through these different things, even when it's partly mixed, even when it's firm and brittle, even when it's good and gold, it, there is a God in heaven who is in control and who knows the state of all things. And then we get Nebuchadnezzar's response in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of, a of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. The response of the king, falling on his face, he gets it, but he doesn't, right? He's humbled in part by all of this, but he doesn't know who to worship, and so he worships Daniel instead of worshiping God, but he recognizes that this God of Daniel is truly the God of all gods, truly the Lord of all kings. And he wants to recognize that, and he elevates Daniel. And he elevates Daniel and elevates his friends, and the author, right, switches back to his friend's name, back to their Babylonian names to, again, just identify they are working within Babylon. They get positions of power and authority, but they are Babylonian. And Daniel will become the ruler of Babylon itself, the heart of the whole empire. He will rule it with his friends. It's an amazing response, an amazing providence and care of God, rewarding him. It's just so many echoes of so many other narratives within the Bible where this happens, right? To those who are faithful and God reveals and then he, he takes care of and elevates. 
So the question as we get to the end of this, of this narrative right for us is, you know, what are we supposed to do with this? Right, as a reader, I mean, we clearly see that there's a lot going on, but we clearly see this, this uncertainty and the interesting times in which Daniel finds himself, right? Taken from, he, he avoids death in Jerusalem, right? Captured and taken away, wasn't killed in Jerusalem, finds himself in this land, and now all of a sudden with this irrational king who is ready just to kill him all off, and you're like, God, did you really save me from Jerusalem just to kill me now? You know, what, what an interesting world that he finds himself in. And we find the response of humility, of honor, and of praise. And as we look at the story, right, as we see how Daniel responds, we see how Nebuchadnezzar responds, right, the question is how are we going to respond in our own age, in our own time, when we find ourselves in a similar circumstance? Because clearly the hope of the passage, the hope of the passage is not for us to be like Daniel, right? It clearly isn't. The intention of the passage, right, is to point us to a Savior like Daniel and hopefully a better one than Daniel because wisdom was not the solution. The author wants to tell you that, right? Daniel, out of his words, said, like, I didn't do anything here. (laughs) It wasn't because Daniel had any wisdom that they were saved. It wasn't because of his prudence that he was saved. It wasn't because of his response that they were saved. God had to intervene, and God intervened, and God came to man and helped, right? This narrative is going to continue through Daniel, not to spoil things, right? He's going to come physically in the, in the furnace even. The point of this passage, right, is to show you how God will intervene and save humanity. We believe in a God who saves, not in a God who rewards righteousness, but in a God who rewards all, for a God who intervenes and saves the helpless and the powerless. Because this narrative of Daniel and the hope then of a Savior like Daniel, but better than Daniel, the hope of a God who will come oh, and dwell amongst men. If you, if you know anything about the gospel, if you know right, the story of the Bible, or this is just one part of it where it's leading is ultimately to Jesus and to the gospels. That's how Right, John is going to start and he's going to tell us right, that God came and made his dwelling amongst men, ultimately disproving the Babylonian sorcerers. Right? A God doesn't dwell with men. Jesus will come and ultimately disprove them and show them. Our God dwells with men. Jesus made his dwelling among us. Jesus comes and he lives the life of wisdom we were called to live. Daniel gives thanks to God in the midst of his trial. Right? That's his reaction. In the midst of that trial, in the midst of his suffering, unjustly. Right? Daniel's in the midst of just an unjust sentence over his head of death. And he gives thanks. He gives thanks. Jesus gives thanks to God. Jesus models for us an entire life of thanksgiving to God. Daniel models a life of thanksgiving. Jesus models a life of thanksgiving that's even better for us. There's a lot of these models through Scripture of people giving thanks. Jesus is even better because even giving thanks for the trial from which there will be no deliverance for him. Daniel gets delivered. 
Jesus will not be delivered from his trial, and he still gives thanks. When you think of Christ at that supper table with his friends, it's a similar image to Daniel with his friends. Gathering together, death eminent. Jesus gathers his disciples together with death eminent. Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. That's his body that will be broken. And he gives thanks. Can you imagine that? Daniel gives thanks with hope and confidence that God will deliver him. Jesus knows there will be no deliverance. He knows that his body will be broken and he thanks God for it. Jesus takes the cup and he gives thanks. The cup that will mean life for us, but suffering and woe for him. Jesus asks, just like Daniel, Jesus asks for his trial to be taken away from him in the garden. Just like Daniel asks for this trial to be taken away, asks for deliverance. Jesus does it to the point of sweating blood. Nothing we or Daniel will ever face could match the suffering of Christ. And yet still, Jesus gives thanks, knowing that his suffering will not be taken away from him. Daniel had his friends with him to bear the burden alongside. Jesus does not. Jesus bears his burden. Jesus sweats blood, asking and praying alone, abandoned by his friends. His friends are sleeping, right, while Jesus is intervening. Whereas Daniel was delivered from his undeserved punishment, Jesus was not. Daniel's prayer was answered, Jesus was not. Jesus' prayer was not answered so that our prayers will always be answered. Through Daniel, right, the undeserving Babylonian wise men were spared. Right? The Babylonian wise men didn't deserve that sentence of death on them either. And through Daniel's actions, right, through the Lord intervening through, through Daniel, right, they were saved. But for us, through Christ, we were all spared who did nothing just like them. But whereas they didn't have, they didn't deserve their sentence, I deserved my sentence. We did nothing to save ourselves, but I certainly deserved the sentence that was hanging over me. Christ didn't just save the innocent, he saved the guilty. Daniel and Jesus both lived in a very interesting time. When you look at the age, when you look at the trials, you look at the suffering, we look at the questions being posed to them, the rulers around them, the forces and the influence at play around them. Right? They lived in a very interesting time. And their responses are tremendous. How will we respond? Right? We live in an interesting time. Right? That's the, the author's intention is for us to look and see ourselves in the story, but not to be Daniel, but to hope for a better one. But it doesn't remove us from that context. In what ways right now, right, has God called us and placed us in this world? Surrounded by rulers and figures, in what ways has Christ called us to suffer? In what ways has Christ called us to be faithful? In what ways has Christ called us to rebel? In what ways has Christ called us to submit? To do what is right to love the unlovable, to serve and to care. How do you view your position in life? 
How do you view the age in which you live? How do you view where you are in your life? How do you view your suffering that you're experiencing? Because we all will suffer. We all have these moments of trial. We all have these undeserved or very deserved moments where we find ourselves in a situation where we will be differentiated based on our faith, based on Christ. Esther, Daniel, all of these narratives are very much the same, where you have these moments where you will be tested. We have these moments, right, where we, where the culture will see us. Esther finds herself in a position, which is not very good, but she finds herself in that position through her own sins and the sins of others. Daniel finds himself in a position through no fault of his own. But we find ourselves in these positions. Do you find yourself somewhere, right? Somewhere doing something, being with or without someone that you didn't choose. When you think of your state of your life, where you are, your job, where you live, your relationships, how do you view it? Are you suffering in your life undeservedly? Are you suffering deservedly? How do you view it? Do you view it with joy and thanksgiving, which is all of Scripture is pointing us to? Do you view this state of your life as a trial, as something you hope to avoid, something you hope to diminish, you hope to get out of? How do you view it? The only way, right, Scripture is pointing us to it, Daniel is pointing us to it, that the only way for us to suffer and to live with joy in our time, it's this world, the time, the age that we live in is, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, right? We were just looking at Time Magazine this morning, you know, how to survive the next four years is the cover. Whew. I don't want to just survive, right? Christ didn't put us on this earth just to survive and to wait till heaven. He put me here, right? He's given me a job, and it may not be the job that I would have picked. He put me in a city that maybe I wouldn't have picked, maybe I did pick, but he's put me in a place for a time like this, for a place like this. Do I look at it with pessimism and skepticism? Do I not trust that there's a God in the universe who is in control of all things? Do I really lose heart and lose hope? Do I really just hope for my suffering to end? Or do I give thanks? Do I take heart? Do I have joy with the circumstance of life that I find myself in? And the way that we do it, the way that we're supposed to do it, right, is to remember the cup that Jesus drained in our place, the cup of suffering that he took, the cup of God's wrath that was towards me and towards my sin. We know that whatever suffering we now encounter is an outworking of God's grace towards us. We know this, like Daniel knew this, but we know this even better than Daniel would have. Daniel knew how Joseph was delivered. I know how, right, Christ delivers. That I know that even if my trial doesn't pass, I'm still loved and delivered. I don't lose hope. God is not distant. God is not uncaring. He is not powerless to deliver us, but that he has delivered us. That this kingdom around me is not the ultimate kingdom. I know that there is a true kingdom that is coming. And in that true kingdom, I know that there is a king who will be good and who will rule and who will reign. So I view this age, right? As Christians, we are to view this age with the question not of how do I escape it, how do I avoid it? How do I distance myself from it? 
how do I, right, not do my job and wait for heaven, right, but rather I do it with the question, how is God going to use me during this time? What has God called me to do? How can I be faithful with this moment of my life, with this job that I didn't want, with this stage of life that I don't enjoy? How am I going to use it? How is Christ going to use it? How is God working out his kingdom in me and in this world? We don't lose hope because we know that the coming kingdom is not built on us, but it's secured and it's built on Christ and on his love and his sacrifice for us on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we worship you and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God of this universe who knows all things, who is in control of all things, who has a plan and a purpose, who has an ending to the story that is glorious and good, and we know that that is coming. And Lord, but we are also just so, so thankful, Lord, that you are not a God who is distant, a God who just keeps those plans to himself, but rather a God who comes to this world, who dwells amongst us, who shows us that plan, who secures our status in that coming kingdom, who demonstrates for us true love, who's given us life, given us hope. You are such a better king than Nebuchadnezzar. You are such a better Daniel than Daniel ever was. Lord, we thank you for that love and that mercy that you have for us. Lord, we thank you that you endured the suffering that was meant for us so that there can never truly be any suffering in this life. That we can endure our suffering with hope and with joy, trusting you and knowing what you have called us to do. Lord, strengthen us. Strengthen us in our inner beings to understand and to know and to grow in that love, to understand how great your love is for us and for this world. Lord, help us to see the world the way that you do, to see the world the way that you saw Nebuchadnezzar. Lord, help us to view the world with love, to engage our culture in love and good deeds. Lord, help us never to lose hope. Help us to see you as the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you're visiting with us, we do a question and answer after sermons. It's just a way of kind of a response to be able to process through some of the things. Because, you know, during a sermon, a lot of things are said. Some things are said that weren't meant to be said, or some things get said in the wrong way. Or, or you know, you have ideas of your own, right? Be able to process.